1: In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with filmmaker John Richard. John is a documentary filmmaker and photographer living in Iowa City, Iowa. After receiving a degree in environmental science and working at the Daily Iowa newspaper, John worked as the assistant to photographer Danny Wilcox Frazier until taking a full-time position at the Iowa City Press Citizen. During this time, he began making short films, including presenting Mr. Lincoln for Slate.com, And his work has been featured in The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, BBC, and Wall Street Journal, among others. John was the director of photography on the Iowa PBS documentary, City of Literature, which served as an inspiration for this podcast. Many of John's films explore aspects of Iowa history and culture, such as the 19th century Danish immigration in The Simple Gift of Walnut Grove, and the first movies to ever be shown in Iowa in Saving Britain. His current film project, a collaboration with Aaron Wolfe, is about the Iowa Mountaineers, a mountain climbing club from Iowa that had a tremendous impact on the way that Americans relate to the outdoors. We discussed John's journey into filmmaking, as well as his documentary style and process. I appreciated the opportunity to hear John discuss the collaboration with Andrew Sherburn and Tommy Haynes, as well as the details about bringing the film Saving Britain to life. If you haven't seen Saving Britain, please check it out. It's a moving story about Mike Zaw's quest to save the Britain film collection. The Guardian described Saving Britain as an absorbing, heartwarming tale. We dig into John's current project and talk about the history of the Iowa Mountaineers, as well as John's research, which has included going through more than 40,000 Kodachrome slides. It was an honor having John join me on the show. I thank him for sharing his time and insight. I hope you enjoy the episode. john thanks so much for joining me on the iowa idea podcast it's an absolute pleasure to have you here Uh, if you don't mind for me and the guests can you tell us a little bit about yourself
0: yeah um i'm from iowa city uh grew up here went to west high uh went to the university of iowa where i uh, got my degree in environmental science with an emphasis in geology i didn't really know what i wanted to do when i came to college but uh Kind of a long story short got into to mountain climbing and rock climbing through my friend uh, Charlie Whitmack and uh, just w- became fascinated by the natural world and um, pursued that. Um, during that time I was taking a lot of pictures. I was working at University Camera um, and I ended up getting a job at the Daily Iowan where I worked with Danny Wilcox Frazier um, and was the photo editor for a period and Really decided that that was kind of my strength, as opposed to the the natural sciences. Although I still have a you know a great interest in them. Um, worked for the Press Citizen for a while, and then when I got laid off in sort of one of the big rounds of layoffs there, I went freelance and um, kind of started making my way into uh, motion. Uh, I'd actually been making some short uh, films uh, based on people I'd met on assignment for the for the newspaper. Uh, the first being a Abraham Lincoln impersonator, who I, I met at the at the Iowa City Library, um, and just kind of asked him afterward if I could maybe follow him around a little bit. I really didn't know what I was doing, but uh, it seemed like a great opportunity and um, ended up publishing that on on Slate.com on his birthday. Um, and that just kind of really opened the door for me to uh, thinking that that maybe, you know, making films was, was what I wanted to do.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Cuz I was going to say kind of your your uh academic degree not not the cleanest fit right away to uh filmmaking.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It, were you were you inspired by films before before you you started in, in
0: college? Um kind of. I mean, I to some degree I guess I'm not really a film buff. You know, I probably watch more movies and certainly more documentaries than the average person, but um I guess i'm i'm more interested in the subject matter most of the time i mean sometimes i even joke that i i wish i didn't even have to make a film i wish i could just spend you know hours following around people that interest me and and having the opportunity to you know ask them intimate questions for 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 hours and then not be sort of responsible for making something although that's not entirely true i think i've always had a an impulse to um, you know like a like a kid that um you know picks up a rock in the playground and finds some bugs underneath it you know my my first impulse has always been to say hey everyone come come look at these what i found under here it's amazing um and i think to some degree making documentary films for me is is a little like that
1: thanks uh and uh one of the film projects that you were involved in was the uh, city of literature uh, which uh, obviously has a strong connection and uh, inspiration for me with the io idea podcast so one, thanks for doing that. Love, loved it. And, uh, two, one, like how did you get involved in that project?
0: Yeah. I mean, most of the credit goes to, uh, uh, Ben Hill, uh, who was the director of that. Uh, but, um, yeah, that was just a really neat opportunity to, you know, it was my first opportunity to work on a longer form project and see a little bit how something, you know, goes from an idea to a finished product. Um, it was, amazing to be able to be in the room and and film the interviews um, with with all the different people around town and, and kind of get a, a peek into this history that had been around me my whole life, but I really didn't know much about. Um, it was interesting too, because I, you know, at, at first we, I think we started to do, um, we didn't really know what the, the approach of the film was going to be. And then we realized that people really didn't know anything about this, you know, the history of literature in Iowa City. Um, there'd been lots of great books written on it, but if you went up to, you know, your average person on the street, they really didn't know. So um, I think at the time it was really important to make something that kind of at least told a, a, you know, that story in a, in a way that was, um, yeah, robust and, and entertaining.
1: Yeah, I, I, I loved it. And I was kind of curious on uh, a lot of the old artifacts and pictures that you have in there, how did you get access to those?
0: Um, I think again that was mostly Ben who did did the research um, and then I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the person who wrote the script they obviously deserve uh, credit as well um, but I think we, we've a lot of my projects we've worked with the uh, University of Iowa Special Collections uh, David McCartney and, and Greg Prickman there and and the many other people there have just been amazing and then also uh, Mary Bennett over the at the State Historical Society um, helped a lot on that project as well um, I'm sure I'm forgetting other people, but, um, it's really a group effort. Um, I, I think, you know, Ben showed me that if you, if you approach people with passion about your project, they'll, they'll oftentimes bend over backwards to help you. And that's something that I've also, um, tried to bring in my own work as well.
1: Right on another, uh, another Iowa film, uh, that you were involved with saving Britain. Fantastic story. Uh, can you tell me how, how you got involved with that and a little bit about that collaboration?
0: Yeah. Um, So Saving Britain was a a feature length documentary film about um, mostly Michael Zaz, a man who in Washington, Iowa, who was a junior high teacher for 39 years, who discovered some of the earliest films in the world um, right there in Washington County. And for the last 30 years, he's kind of, you know, he's not really a film expert. Um, He's more of a local historian, and he's been showing the films to local audiences at the Ainsworth Film Festival, Um, every year, Um, I encountered him through Red Cedar Chamber Music, who was a a group who um, was one of my earliest clients. Um, They're a nonprofit um, chamber music group, and I had filmed a couple of their concerts every year, Um, pretty low-key. I love, you know, sitting through the concert. It doesn't even feel like work. Um, They said, well, next year, we're doing something maybe more interesting. We're going to be working with with these old films and putting new music um, composed by Harvey Solberger, um, who's also an Iowan, uh, you know, to these silent films. And I met, met Mike for the first time, um, saw some of the films, and immediately thought, this is absolutely something I'd love to do. Um, the, the big break, though, in a way happened when uh, Andrew Sherburn and I were talking um, about, he had approached me about making the fundraising, the Kickstarter video to, for the original film scene. And uh, we were just chit chatting about what we were up to. And I said, oh, I've, you know, I've got this, this I just met this guy. I think I'm going to pursue this project uh, about these old films. And, and he said, wait a second, we actually got tipped off in this as well. And, and, and you know, have been, and and in a very, I, I'd like to say Iowa way, you know, instead of maybe being territorial or worrying about this or that, you know, we'd never worked together. We said, well, we should all, we should all work on this together. And so him and his filmmaking partner, Tommy Haynes, and I uh, spent, I think three and a half years following Mike around to the Library of Congress over to Europe, um, kind of all over the place, trying to figure out what was going to happen with these films and how he might show them again to a modern audience um, in as close a way as possible to the way that they were originally shown here in Iowa, almost 120 years ago.
1: Yeah. And, and thanks. Cause one of my questions, I, I was going to ask you how, how long of a time period. So you said about three and a half years that you were following yeah. him around. And yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous documentary and such a powerful uh, story for folks that haven't, haven't seen it, uh, highly, highly encourage it. For me, on the character side with, with Mike, uh, one just seems like a, like a really, like, when I say character in a, in a nice way, right? Not not like, but just such an interesting man. But the, the character arc for me that was so moving was, he has something so special in his possession, and it just seemed like he was struggling to find help in taking care of this. And mm-hmm. what I found really interesting was it seemed like he uh, and and I apologize, I can't remember uh, the French connection here.
0: Oh, Serge Bromberg was a, a, a early film, early French film expert.
1: Yeah, and and so. Serge becomes super excited about these treasures because there there's some things he's never seen before. And I just it to me it's kind of like the idea sometimes you can't be a prophet in your own town. It's like yeah. uh, Mike has this gift of, of these resources that he's been maintaining that it 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 almost seemed hard for him to find people to to take more interest in it, and I just wanted to get maybe if you don't mind peeling back the curtain one is is was my assessment correct uh because let me know if I'm off, <laughs> but then the other is like if if I was right like how how did what was the breakthrough for Mike to really get more people involved to help protect that collection
0: yeah, I mean he would be a great person to have on on your podcast sometime, but um yeah, it just in getting to know him, he's just such an incredible person. Um, he's profoundly impacted the lives of so many people through his teaching. In our, in our um, film festival, you know, tour, there hardly was a show no, anywhere we were, were in the world um, where there wasn't at least one student who showed up, you know, to, to say hi to him and, and see the film. Um, he just genuinely loves history and Iowa history, especially, and... Um, I think one, one sort of guiding principle that I've tried to take is, is that the idea that we, in a way we teach history backwards. We, we sort of teach the big, uh, big concepts first and then we sort of you know, add on local history as an, as an add-on. When really maybe we should be teaching history the other way. Teach local history first and then once people understand the place that they are from and the things that they see every day and how they got to be that way, then they'll start being able to understand the bigger concepts and, and how those um, fit, fit into the bigger picture. Um, Mike has an, an, a vast number of collections of things. Um, his uh, wife, Julie, is very uh, accommodating of his of his collections. Um, and, you know, I, I think during the course of the film, we had to win her over a little bit, um, but now we're all very good friends. Um, you know, for instance, he has a, a collection of um, feed sack cloth, um, p- perhaps the largest, um, one of the largest in the, in the world, and he gives these amazing shows about the history of, of fashion as it relates to the, the fabrics that were used to, um, to put f- feed in. Um, he also has, we, th- we believe, the largest collection of nativity sets in the world, um, several thousand different nativity sets from all over the world um, that he sets up every other year at the Ainsworth Opera House. Um, I think he's also been, he's been really inspiring to me, especially in my my latest film, which we'll talk about later, I suppose. Um, but just in, you know, he's not a professional historian or a researcher, but he has sort of, you know, done the work to, you know, of a researcher uh, and an archivist for things that he's passionate about. And um, I think that's really influenced me to, to be able to sort of take that seriously as something that someone might do. Um, Yeah. A couple,
1: a couple things, uh, still with, uh, with Saving Britain that I, I, with Mike, not only the films, but also the physical equipment to project the films. It's fascinating just that some of those things are still intact Mm -hmm. and, and work because how do you know, how old is that, that kind of, the, the super bright projector that he had. It's, it's well over a hundred years old, right?
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's not as bright as we would have wished it was. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when we show these old movies, um, usually after the film in a live screening, we'll, we'll do about 20 minutes of the films with Mike's narration and, and project them. Um, we were able to do, you know, the highest quality 4K scans of these original um, nitrate films. And um, they're, they're much better quality than anyone would have ever seen them in the past. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think the, the projector was from 1905 or I can't remember somewhere, you know, the yeah. early 1900s. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Britain collection is significant, not just because of the four and a half hours of nitrate film um, that were in it, but also just all of the receipts for where they purchased those films, all the catalogs they purchased them from, the, all the correspondence. Um, between Frank Brinton and different people, all the newspaper articles and editorials. I mean, there's just a massive amount of, um, of things that were preserved in this collection in a way, um, you know, kind of like how that, you know, for a dinosaur bone to survive, it has to not only be deposited, but also kind of have a, a whole, uh, you know, very narrow range of things happen to it. Um, this material was, was left in a basement and sort of forgotten about. Um, and then only by chance that did Mike um, understand that, that it might be significant and then, you know, come into possession of it. Um, so it's really more than the films. It's really a, a snapshot of what life was like in Washington, Iowa um, in the at the turn of last century.
1: Yeah, and a side note in the time of uh, pandemic, uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting is... Uh, What you and the film scene crew did, I I believe it was last month, to have a uh, a virtual uh, edition of the Amesworth Film Festival.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. Um, You know, Mike, you know, grew up around the Amish and uh, has a very close relationship to the Amish, as you kind of see in the film. We were actually able to uh, have permission to film in a one-room school that uh, where the Amish were. Just kind of as long as we focused mostly on Mike and you know. And you know, with a few restrictions, but still, it was it was a great privilege to be able to do that. Um, but when we met him, I don't think he he didn't have a phone, a cell phone, or a computer or a credit card. And um, you know, he's now got a he's now got I think an i iPad, uh, which is how he was able to to stream. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the Ainsworth uh Film Festival, I think w- it was the last uh, weekend in July. And, you know, he never had to even make marketing materials for it because everyone in town just knew that it would be at sundown on the Friday and Saturday um, in in July. So um, obviously that wasn't possible this year. And so we, we collaborated with a, a California-based uh, a silent film festival and, and um, did it virtually, which went off, it went better than I thought it did. I really had no idea what was going to happen.
1: Yeah, it was it was great, and it was a pleasure to be able to to sit and watch the films, and also Mike's narration uh, and <laughs> and the, his ability to contextualize it very quickly on why this might be important, where where this was from. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, so I do want to talk to you about your your latest project. Uh, when when I heard about it, I, honestly, I thought. I thought it was a joke, uh, and and then then the more that that I dug in and actually having some conversations with you, it's it's fascinating. But if you don't mind telling folks about your your latest project,
0: yeah. So um, my latest project is is sort of uh, we're telling. So right now, uh, what happened to the Iowa Mountaineers? Uh, the Iowa Mountaineers were a, a mountain climbing and outdoors club that was founded at the University of Iowa uh, by John and Edie Ebert in nineteen forty. Um, John was the chief radio engineer at WSUI Radio um, and his wife was was a nurse and the club grew by the 1950s into one of the largest mountaineering clubs in the country uh, next to the Mazamas out in Portland or the Seattle Mountaineers or the Appalachian Mountain Club. Um, Obviously some things were not of the same scale but um, you know, they had thousands of members and by the time they dissolved in the mid-90s had, had taken, you know, tens of thousands of people out climbing for the first time. Um, over the years, they, you know, they started small right before the war and then um, grew into a more substantial club by the 50s and then um, became more and more linked with the university as um, you, could, you could basically fulfill your entire P.E. requirement um for a semester by going on one you know two or three day trip uh with the iowa mountaineers so that just introduced an enormous number of iowans to a sport that they probably never would have encountered uh before um and they they climbed all over the world i mean in 19 uh in 1951 uh, they they loaded up you know cattle trucks and with the stolen dorm room mattresses and you know drove to alaska um they a lot of their climbing was done in the sawtooth mountains of idaho where uh, they they were able to name you know and and be the first to, to climb several mountains um, and they and they sort of intersected with a lot of you know important people through the years who became important to climbing uh, paul petzel was uh, one of the first people who guided them in the, the the grand tetons of of wyoming and in the sawtooth and he would go on to found the national outdoor leadership school Knowles. Uh, based on some of the techniques that he honed um, guiding with the Mountaineers um, for any climbing aficionados out there. Uh, they, they, he, they even climbed with Fred Becky in 1949 where he guided them um, on Mount Baker and Mount Rainier up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, his journal entry and the photograph that we have uh, show him uh, having climbed it in a swimsuit, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know. I would like to hear more about what he thought of the Mountaineers. but. Um, yeah, they just have an incredible sort of history. Um, even Ignacio Ponsetti, the the doctor who invented the revolutionary treatment of clubfoot here at the University of Iowa, um, was a resident in 1944 and went with them to the uh, canoe, canoeing outing out in the up in the Quetico. Um, so I don't know, and and every day it seems I'm I'm getting more and more, um, you know, finding more and more connections as people you know reach out to me and. And say, well, did you know about this? Did you know about that? Um, so yeah, it was just a really in, 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 and then so the way I got involved, um, I, I sort of one of them in legend. Um, as I mentioned, sort of rock climbing and mountain climbing became, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in many ways when I went into college. So finding something that got allowed me to travel cheaply and sort of um, do something physical and fun, um, it really resonated with me. And but and I'd heard of the Iowa Mountaineers. Um, but didn't really know much about them. Um, A a few years ago um, my friend was working at University Camera and said, hey, uh, have you ever heard of the Iowa Mountaineers? And I said, well, yeah, a little bit. He said, well, uh, you know, someone just brought in a bunch of these slides from the 30s and 40s and they're just amazing. You should really um, check them out. And I I, uh, Went and looked at them, and yeah, sure enough, they were just incredible. The, these Kodachromes are perfectly preserved. A lot of the glass-mounted medium-format slides are are pristine, um, and it turned out that this was just the tip of the iceberg. So I, I contacted uh, what turned out to be the grandsons of John and Edie Ebert, who had brought the material in. Um, and long story short, we um, you know they flew in from where they are out west, and we opened up their mother their mother's garage um, where this stuff had been sitting for you know 30 years really untouched and uh over the course of the last two years and um with the help of a um a green light grant from from the uh iowa arts council and produce iowa i've been able to work with my uh, team of assistants to digitize almost twelve thousand of the slides um, and about 90 hours of 16 millimeter films Um, And then we've begun organizing all this into a a database so we're able to uh you know track different members see who is on different trips um really sort of see a cross-section of of the evolution of outdoor recreation from the mid-30s until the the 1990s um that's just incredible i mean you can see the changes in equipment the changes in clothing um the you know, there's all sorts of things that I think will be able to be studied by by people and that I'm, you know, really finding fascinating as I work with the collection, uh, in addition to just the cool mountains that they climbed.
1: Yeah, yeah. And just thinking about the, kind of the, the lack of uh, basically practice areas in Iowa compared to the climbs that they were going on. And I just, I just love that spirit of adventure and going out and exploring. And I've had the opportunity to see some of the slides that uh, you're talking about on Instagram. Uh, and the, the images are just, they're, they're delightful to, to look mm-hmm. at. I think both, both what's going on, but like you said, the, the pristine nature of, of them and the, the vibrant color is, is fantastic.
0: Yeah, it turned out that not all of them were so pristine. The, the collection had actually been through a house fire and was barely saved, um, which, which is part of the reason it's sort of taken so much effort to even get basic digitizations. Um, they, I think they were very hastily removed from a, from a burning house at one yeah. point. Um, so a lot of reconstruction of any sort of order had to ha- happen and there's some that were lost. But um, overall, yeah, the Kodachrome is incredibly stable um, you know, I, I still I can't read some digital files that I that I shot, you know, while I worked at the Daily Iowan, whereas these pictures that are seventy years old, I you know, they look, you know, better than reality in a way. Right. Uh if you don't mind, can you walk
1: me through kind of the the creative storytelling and editing process when you're dealing with that much information? Cause uh to me it it just sounds like an almost overwhelming amount of <laughs> Data to sort through, so how, how do you decide like what might be a story thread and also then putting together that cohesive narrative
0: right um, I, I just I try to take a sort of dialectical approach to most projects where I, I think it's important to start with some sort of direction, some sort of framework. Um, you know you need to be knowing to some degree what you think you're looking for, um, but then I think it's very important to pivot as soon as you have enough information. And be looking for you know a reason to pivot because you just know that your initial direction isn't going to probably be exactly what you need to do. Um, so I, I basically started out with this you know started with some of their materials, the stories. I, the first step of this, I guess, was to understand how they wanted their story told. You know, they published journals, um, diaries, promotional materials. Um, you know, there was somewhat of a record that I felt like it was important to sort of really understand you know, how they imagined, um, their history to be. And I think that was a really good starting point. And then from there, I could branch off and sort of follow different leads that I'd find along the way that uh, maybe weren't talked about as much, or maybe they didn't realize were important at the time. Um, I, I started out making a a spreadsheet where I put, um, I, I, decided that for 56 years of their operation, I put two, two rows for each year. Um, and just sort of decided two different trips that they'd take each year that were important. And then um, on the other axis, I, I put all the, you know, as I started to hear different names repeated or, or new thought that someone was significant for one reason or another, I put their name across, you know, probably to the point where there's about 100 names now. And as I found out information about, you know, a different trip or a different person, I would just fill it in kind of where, you know, where it should be. And that way I could start to see who went on what trip with someone else. You know, if I needed to try to figure out who was in a picture, you know, I could, I could kind of triangulate who it might be. Um, If I was looking for more information about a particular trip, I could see who's, you know, who do I need to look up? Are they still alive? Do they have descendants? Can I contact them? Um, So a lot of this has been an accumulation process. I've taken in, um, several sort of smaller collections of other Iowa Mountaineers members, usually kind of a similar story where they're in the basement, you know, I don't know why my great aunt, you know, what these old films are or what these old photographs are. Um, you know, and we sort of have brought those into the collection. Um, yeah. So in terms of a process, I don't know, I guess with every film, you sort of feel like you're making it up as you go along. I don't, at least with this type of, of independent film, um, it could certainly be done in a more efficient manner in a sense um, but part of the way I like to work is is with a pretty open-ended you know uh, o- open-ended you know less of a mandate to finish it in a particular time but, but just to like do it right and make sure that you know I don't feel like I haven't pursued yeah. something that I should have
1: so and and from my perspective too it's it sounds like you're you have to be open in the beginning to the pro on, on what might emerge because right? mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a lot here, and then you'll see where you might pivot rather than here's a specific story I'm going to tell, and then I have to find evidence to support that storyline. It's more a little bit of seeing where this might take you,
0: right? Right, I think it's important because some people start out too vague and some people start out too specific. And of course, I pretend like I know what the middle ground might be. But um, at least that seems to be something consistent in terms of projects that are successful and those that have that run into to trouble.
1: One of the conversations uh, that that you and I had in the past, and and if it's all right to talk about this with with the podcast, it sounds like it was quite the social club too. A lot of relationships <laughs> uh, that that uh, came from from members of the uh, Iowa Mountaineers.
0: Yeah, that that was one thing that they really um, you know like to to talk about was the over 300 uh, couples met on an iowa mountaineers outing and then subsequently got married um, one of the people that i've been interviewing uh is he's 95 now um, but joined when he was 16 and he uh married a, you know a woman that he met in the iowa mountaineers and then when she passed away um you know about a decade ago he started dating another woman that he had met in the iowa mountaineers so maybe he counts as Double, um, but I, yeah, I think it was an incredible opportunity, especially at the time for for men and women and i 'm sure you know uh, other types of relationships that maybe weren 't as well documented um, to to sort of you know happen you know you 're in a new place, a beautiful place you 're sharing something you 've never seen before um, but and i 've really thought a lot about it, um, it, it I think or at least tried to find hypotheses hypotheses about why. Um, I think it opened up a space for people to, to reinvent themselves, you know, when you're, and, and it gave people an opportunity to be helpers. You know, when you're on a climbing trip with other people, it gives you so many opportunities, not just to help other people, but to be helped and to ask for help. And I think that really forms bonds between people um, in an incredible way.
1: Yeah, that it, it's interesting too, because as, as you were saying that, I was just thinking about it uh, kind of on, almost corporate trust building, organizational trust, a lot of times go, going out for a weekend. And I'm not talking about mm-hmm. doing trust falls, but having mm-hmm. an experience with other people where uh, it's, it's out of your natural environment. I mean, you're in nature, but out of your, your day-to-day environment. And, but I hadn't thought about also that just that powerful, that, that helping and knowing your, your part. Cause when you see those climbing pictures too, how many people are you know connected with ropes and helping each other? with the climb. Yeah. It, it, it does have to, to create some, some strong emotional bond.
0: Well, in, in my life, my, you know, some of my best friends are the people that I climbed with you know, 15 years ago. And um, I think when you put yourself in the sort of risky situations um, and it can, it bonds you in a way that um, is hard to do in any other way.
1: Talk to me a little bit about because uh, a theme I like exploring on the podcast is collaboration. And so you you know you have you have assistants, and you also on uh, Saving Britain you know collaborated with Andrew and others. Do you do you have do you have a team that you know you always go to, or does each project kind of you you look for new collaborators?
0: Uh, each project's different. On on this project, actually, um, I'm co-producing and co-directing with Aaron Wolf, who's a, a filmmaker based in in New York. Um, he did the movie King Corn and he's produced a, a, several other documentaries um, as well. Um, him and I worked together on a previous project that's still actually in the works. Um, but we, yeah, just really kind of bonded over our love of climbing. Both his, his parents were, were climbers and he was a climber. And, um, you know, when the opportunity to, to make a climbing movie that had to do with Iowa came up, Um, it was just kind of an obvious fit so you know I'm kind of the more hands dirty uh, deep within the project and then he's able to see I think a a bigger perspective um, since he's not so close to the story as it were Uh, I think that's really important it's it's hard sometimes when you're too close to a story to do a good job of identifying what's going to resonate with other people and what the big picture of it is so um, yeah collaborating with him is is really great and um and then yeah i've got a a bunch of assistants um that have kind of helped in various ways um with this project i've even had you know when we sleeved forty thousand kodachrome slides and organized them based on the graphic design um on their mounts which gave us an indication of you know within a couple years when they might have been taken and therefore what trip they might be from and who might be in the picture um so that was a pretty immense, you know, effort. There was um, eighty-five carousels of you know eighty or one hundred and forty slides that we kept, you know, in order in the slides. But then there were—they never threw away any of the outtakes either. And I wasn't going to be satisfied, you know, just knowing that we would finish this film and uh, what's in that box of unsorted, you know, these totes and totes full of just loose slides. Um, so we went ahead and just kind of pushed through and and uh, you know sleeved all those. Um, t- up, up until COVID, you know, I was having little parties where I'd have, you know, photographers from the Daily Iowan or friends who are just interested in history or just whoever, um, you know, come over and, and just helps, you know, for a couple hours, sort some slides. I'd give them a stack, they'd sleeve them. I'd give a little, you know, dog and pony show of, of the collection. And, um, you know, again, I think influenced by Mike Zaz who, when he originally acquired the Brinton collection of, of material, um, had his, his students at the junior high clean them with camel hair brushes and, you know, do some of the restoration work that might typically be left to uh, professionals, um, knowing full well that there's a risk that they could damage the things. But I think getting, you know, there's such, when you when you physically interact with, with original materials, I think it bonds you to those materials and to that history in a really important way. And um, I think you know, for this Iowa Mountaineers project, the, I see the documentary as just kind of the tip of a spear of a, of a much larger sort of opportunity to tell a story and make it relevant to the present. Uh, the documentary is the most flashy part that sort of gets the attention, but then um, it's not just, you know, maybe a book and, and some other physical materials. It's also just the, um, you know, a, a generation of people who are going to tell this story to other people and who are going to, you know, be at a party and, and relating it um, to, to someone who, I, I don't know, you just never, you never know how, how it's gonna be, but um, I think getting a lot of people involved in one way or another is, is, is really important.
1: As you're talking about the, the physical media elements that you're dealing with, and you mentioned COVID, so in this time, of, has that slowed down your, your production process?
0: Um, I don't know if it slowed it down. You know, I've, I've had a little more time to do research and to, a lot. you know, once everything was sleeved and then we went through and were able to digitize about 12,000, then a second layer of organization takes place digitally within um, the database. So, um, you know, there's really no end to how much time could be spent doing that. You know, we're trying to reverse geotag things. Um, so we'll be able to have a map of where, you know, generally where pictures were taken. We're comparing them with, you know, current, uh, pictures. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious from an environmental science perspective, you know, do we have pictures of glaciers that have changed significantly in these 75 years, you know, what do some of these natural areas, you know, national parks were a very new idea. The idea that one might recreate in the outdoors, um, you know, was a new idea. So, you know, figuring out where these pictures were taken is, is pretty important, um, I have, it has it definitely slowed down the, uh, you know, interviewing people process. I've done a lot of uh, phone interviews with people that I've kind of got on a running list of, you know, that I'll eventually hopefully interview in, in person. Um, but I, I think, it, relative to other people's projects, I think this one's been a little less less affected, just because there's so much work that, you know, I was already spending most of my time, you know, either by myself or, you know, uh, you know, in a small group, um, anyway.
1: No, that, that's great. And that, uh, that reverse geocaching sounds fascinating to me. Cause as soon as you said that, that I was, I was kind of curious on how different some landscapes might look over yeah. a 75 year period.
0: Yeah. One, and even, even, I just got back from, a, a couple week, uh, filming trip, out west, where we uh, I met up with the, the grandsons of the founders, um, and we, we climbed some of the Iowa Mountaineers peaks in in Idaho, uh, in the Sawtooths, and and then visited a bunch of the locations that the Iowa Mountaineers had had been. So, and I a lot of my the I a lot of my eye was trained on um, in just finding things that might be different, you know, because the the crowding and the the just the number of people that are using these spaces and the the ways that They've what was once a natural space is now a more built environment. Right. I'm not trying to mi- say that it's gotten worse or better. I mean, I think that's you know that's a different thing. But just kind of exploring how things have changed and how things haven't changed.
1: So, as these these projects have fairly long runways, uh, mm-hmm. from my perspective, as I'm hearing these, uh, how how do you do you do you try to um, like you, you know, so the Iowa Mountaineers project do you keep blinders on for other, like try to stay focused or, or do, do other documentary projects kind of pop up for you?
0: I mean, uh, maybe I should tr- buy some blinders that might help <laughs> me out actually. Uh, cause I, I don't, I'm not particularly good at focusing. Um, I've just sort of accepted to some degree that I, I like to work on different things and I, my attention, you know, span is fairly short. Um, so working on multiple projects, gives me the opportunity to sort of just work hard on whatever it is that, you know, needs to get done. I I make a lot of lists and then I just kind of tick them off um, for different projects. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I also do, you know, video work for, you know, companies and organizations around the area. um, That's probably, you know, half or so of my income, um, which a lot of people, you know, like to be either appeared, filmmaker or pure sort of i don't know some something I, I don't really i was never i never felt like a pure documentary filmmaker so it never really bothered me to do other stuff i just see it as being giving me more, more flexibility to not be time pressured um just because i'm not you know having to go into massive debt to finance a project i'm not having to finish something before i feel like it should really be finished um and i and i like working with a variety of of clients on things and, and just sort of, uh, chopping wood as it were, yeah, um, yeah. rather do than you, pursuing my dreams or, you know, whatever these right. people think I do.
1: Are there any other projects that you're working on that you can talk about now or ideas um, that, that I, are, that, kind that of... I can talk about, <laughs>
0: um, one cool one that it's probably, again, will be a couple of years is, uh, I started collaborating with a photographer in town, Barry Phipps to make, a, a you know, film the Moffat houses, um, the, very interesting architecturally uh houses yeah there's about a hundred of around town that were made of um, many recycled and repurposed materials um around the depression era um you know we're sort of trying to interview some of the people who live in those homes who oftentimes know a lot about the history and i don't really know what that's going to develop but he's he's uh photographing them with an eight by ten film camera um so somewhere in you know interviewing the homeowners and then following his process as he tries to photograph all these homes. Um, I think there'll be a nice little piece. Um, yeah, yeah th-
1: no, that's, that's interesting because, uh, you know, my, my neighborhood there, there's a handful of, uh, Moffat cottages around. So just, you know, I, I drive by, I drive by them every day and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a, a curiosity, uh, for me and kind of an offshoot, uh, I wish I could remember who the artist was that was responsible for this project, but there's a handful of historical markers in our neighborhood that describes like what was mm. the like, you know, and some are more obvious, like kind of like the, you know, the Grant Wood, the home that he was in. And, but other markers. And uh, one of the things I found fascinating too, that I, I found in, in South, kind of the Southeast Iowa city, Rundell street, right. It's, mm-hmm. it's ex, extra wide. And it used to, that used to be the end of a streetcar line coming out of, Iowa City. So for me, it's also fascinating thinking that Iowa City had some type of light rail transit back in the day. And, and there, was a, uh, there used to be a semi-professional baseball team, the Golden Sox uh, had a baseball field. You know, so you had like Civil War era Camp Pope and kind of where Longfellow is. But as you drift away from Longfellow a little bit, you still had these weird uh, infrastructure <laughs> things.
0: Uh, some of those rails from the from the trolley are actually in Moffat houses. He used them as structural elements, really, yeah,
1: <laughs> so kind of kind of ahead of his time on reclaimed elements
0: yeah, I mean, I think there 's a lot we can uh you know we could learn and use from that way of responding to a time of scarcity so what do you know
1: what was uh what provoked uh Moffat to build the homes like what was his inspiration
0: um I'm definitely not the expert yet. This is just kind yeah. of a project we've been, you know, filmed a, a little bit on um, and I've been trying to read up on the historical work that's been done. Um, but he was a businessman and had many different industries and kind of basically built these as rental, as, as low, in, inexpensive rental properties. Um, but he, he obviously had an eye for design and was kind of inspired by a combination of uh, 16th century English cottages and um, things he would see in architectural magazines that he thought he could kind of bring the flavor of into his creations.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, one of of the topics that I'd like to cover on the podcast is just advice and a few different kind of, uh, perspectives on advice. Uh, so one is the good advice that maybe you've had from a mentor that continues to resonate with you. Uh, and another is from, uh, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon, steal like an artist, but he he says when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So I'm also curious uh, in your journey, was there advice you wish you would have had kind of earlier in your career?
0: I mean, maybe it's just because I don't take it or I haven't always taken advice so well (laughs) that I just can't even remember it. Um, But I've definitely been I think, and obviously been influenced by some of my, my mentors. I mean, Danny Wilcox-Fraser, who's a photographer who was the the photo coach and still is at the Daily Iowan. Um, I assisted him for a couple of years and just kind of, even though him and I do fairly different types of work, just kind of getting a peek into what it looks like to really push hard on a project, um, I think was really, you know, powerful to me. Um, and then, as I said, you know, just Mike Zaws, the subject of the of saving Britain. Um, I mean I think I continue to sort of people are even now joking that I'm like turning into him as much as not not turning into him, but just kind of becoming a someone who, you know, boy, you sure have a lot of weird collections in your house and uh, you know, you're I don't know. I I feel like he's given me permission uh in a way to to explore some of my uh weird obsessions uh in a way that I might not have otherwise um I don't know. My my dad is, and my parents are both attorneys. Um, I, my mom was a, an art teacher. Um, and I think that sort of combination of, of being self-employed and then also having an emphasis on creativity and sort of, sort of doing things, you know, making your own fun, making the most of whatever is in front of you and just sort of a, you know, a practical attitude has been pretty important. Um, I think it's, if, if there is advice, I, well, I guess the advice I, I seem to find myself giving to, to younger f- folks, especially who are pursuing uh, photography and filmmaking is, uh, you know, part of me w- wishes I went to film school and would love to go to film school. But part of me also just feels like, you know, how to use a camera is not that hard. There's so many great resources out there. Um, I was able to teach it to myself relatively easily even before, you know, YouTube was, was available. I think the hard thing is is having something to say and having the confidence to to say it, and um, and that's why I feel like, you know, if you're interested in something else other than media production, oftentimes it's better just to study that. Not just you know, some people say I want to study something different than this in college as a backup plan, but I mean, I I, th- I see it more as cross training. I mean, I think the more diverse your your thoughts are, the more diverse your friend groups are, your influences are. Um, you know the the more interesting the the uh, the creative output you're going to be able to make is, and the broader perspective you're going to have is, um, and you really don't know where those influences are going to come from until the opportunity is right in front of you, and you say, "Oh wow, I'm a mountain climber and a filmmaker, and I have a I just made a film about you know old films, and oh here's and I you know here's a film that's exactly about that." I mean I don't know that it's meant to be that way but i think that's just how life appears to us is that um you know we we find opportunities and then we're given the choice to either pursue them or or not um i'd also just say that i think uh like i think i said earlier if if you if you need help from from someone and you really know that they're the right person who might be able to help you or at least you're pretty sure if you approach them you know with sincerity and passion i think you, you it's amazing what people are willing to give. Um, you also have to be ready to get rejected about half the time, but the other half the time, you know, it's going to, you know, probably pay off, you know, far more than you had imagined. Uh, and that's definitely been consistent with, with these projects. I mean, people want to be part of something cool and, you know, as long as and, and if, you, if you bring them something that, that, you know, is cool, they're going to respond.
1: Thanks. One of the things I want to dig in on a little bit, too, when we're talking about uh, media production, do you have a ratio in your head of how much time you spend on something versus a second or a minute of screen time? And the, the reason I ask is I, I, try to, I try to help folks realize too that um, well produced things take a lot of work. Right. And, and it, it's something like a theater production, right. You even think about the amount of time rehearsals in set design, uh, film, obviously we're talking about the amount of time that that goes in to just even produce like an hour and a half documentary, but do you, do you have a ratio in your head by chance of, of what that, that might be?
0: No, I mean, it's, it's gotta be, um, it's gotten better actually over the years. I think more and more I know what I'm looking for and I'm not spending a lot of time filming something that I, that's definitely not gonna you know, be in the finished product. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think when you're starting out, especially you'll, you can never really underestimate how low that ratio is gonna be, um, especially when you don't quite know what you're going for Um, every time I get back from a shoot for the most part, all I can really think about for a couple of days are the moments that I missed or, you know, something I didn't quite get or I screwed up all I I mean, it takes a a sort of cleansing period in my mind to go back to the material that I was actually able to capture and say, wow, that's okay. There's something interesting there. Oh, oh, oh good. That's interesting. Oh, this kind of says the same thing as what, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a period of, uh, um, of mourning in a way, (laughs) at least for me, oftentimes when I, when when I get back from an important shoot um, and I think, but it really depends on the project. I mean, some, some, you know, I do a lot of like commissions and, you know, sort of smaller projects where I kind of know what I'm going for. I know what it needs to be in the end and I know what the the sort of basic story is. And um, I'm pretty efficient at that at this point, probably about a maybe a one to five <laughs> ratio. But I mean, Saving Britain, yeah. we filmed, hun- you know, a couple hundred hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh,
1: I, pre- I appreciate that. One of the other things I uh, wanted to uh, kind of uh, build on is when you were talking about, uh, you know, basically other, knowing other systems, right? And, and what that can do for you in problem solving. Uh, some of the designers that I've, I've worked with and other designers that I've, I've talked to that I really appreciate and it's information I try to share is it's that like, if you want to be a, on the design side, if you want to be a better designer, learn other systems. It's like it could be a it could be a a, a musical instrument. It could be you know a, a hobby that is outside of the thing that you do all the time. Though one I think it just expands your mind. But like you, said, you can find those connections. And one one designer to me said, uh, learn another language. Like just learning a foreign language and also the all the you know, the cultural elements and the idiomatic expressions are ways to kind of open up your mind to see how like a a pattern because for me it feels like it gives you new tools like oh here's a problem and now I have a different different tool that might be better to to solve that so I really liked your your kind of mountain climbing and uh (laughs) filmmaking
0: yeah I, I think that's more important now than ever as the sort of technologies that we are immersed on in in our lives are sort of pushing us towards you know more of whatever it is we were doing before like it's almost like having a new thought having a new solution to an old problem is the hardest thing because we're so constrained now and even some of the ideas that we can explore as you know either solutions to existing problems or new ways to problematize you know the world around us um i I like to think to some degree that my background in geology gives me some sort of perspective that it's hard to put my finger on but just sort of understanding human beings within the context of a six billion you know a year old Earth or like I, I you know it, it it in some ways makes us you know less important and more important like right um, yeah,
1: no thanks uh, were there any topics we didn 't cover today that
0: um, no, not really i think if if people want to see more of my work, uh, I just updated my reel, which is kind of a retrospective little cut of of a lot of my projects on my website, bocceballfilms.com. And um, by the time this podcast goes up, we should have a trailer and some promotional materials for the Iowa Mountaineers film at uh, iowamountaineers.com. Um, and I would also say that uh, with the Iowa Mountaineers film, if anyone listening has a connection to them, you know, maybe your relatives or, or friends were involved. I'm, I'm, I'm still in many ways in the um, accumulation phase. So please, you know, c- contact me and, um, you know, let me know. I, I really, so many people say, oh, I've got all these slides, but they're not organized. You know, don't worry about it. Any, you know, I'd love to see them. And at the very least, if there's anything important in there, I'll digitize it for you. Um, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm actively looking for folks around the area to collaborate with um, who have an interest in this subject matter. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out.
1: Oh, that's great. John, thank you so much for joining me today. An absolute pleasure to to have you here. And I, I'm so looking forward to what, what comes out of the uh, Iowa Mountaineer Project.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Matt. Have a good day. Take care.